This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Is the term deep state pejorative or positive? Was and is the FBI using its power to oust Trump, favor Hillary Clinton? Why is Rod Rosenstein so critical to the question of Trump's obstruction of justice? And did the Mueller report go too far or not far enough? These questions and more are addressed in James Stewart's stunning new book, Deep State, Trump, the FBI, and the Rule of Law, just out this week. Jim is uniquely suited to write this book, a lawyer by training, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, front-page editor for The Wall Street Journal, and now with The New York Times. His being so perfect for this is also evidenced by his previous 11 best-selling books like Den of Thieves, Bloodsport, and Disney War. He combines fast-paced, suspenseful narratives with powerful insights on ethics and leadership. Most importantly, each week in his New York Times weekly column, Common Sense, he represents the epitome of journalism, thorough, smart, and judicious. Void of bias are trustworthy eyes and ears of understanding the world of politics, business, and leadership. Jim, welcome to Just the Right Book. Well, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. Well, you deserve them. Um, so the term deep state, yes. uh, what does it literally mean? And how has it been imbued to mean in this Trump era? It, it literally began decades ago to describe the entrenched bureaucracy in countries like Turkey and Egypt which in many cases engaged in a shadow government would occasionally band together to undermine, conspire against, and overthrow not just elected leaders, but even, even dictators who ran afoul of entrenched powers. And somehow it migrated from these um, kind of barely democratic states, uh, relatively undeveloped economies, much more recently and really under Trump to the idea that there might be some kind of similar sinister uh, deep state you know, cabal going on in this country of entrenched bureaucrats who are trying to protect their own power and privileges at the expense of democratically elected officials. Mm. So in your book, uh, you... You start with the Hillary Clinton email investigation, and I think that investigation brings us sort of a microcosm of a bunch of these issues. So uh, give us a little synopsis of how that came to be an FBI investigation and what started to undermine the possibility that that was not being conducted the way it should have been. Well, it, th this was a, a one of the most public referrals to the FBI ever. The State Department, in in a sort of routine examination, had discovered the fact that 
uh, Hillary Clinton, while Secretary of State, had exclusively used her personal uh, BlackBerry device for transmitting emails, not the State Department server, and uh, began to investigate whether any classified information had passed over those insecure channels. And they found enough evidence that they uh, handed it over to the FBI. And they made an announcement to that effect. So everyone knew that the uh, State Department had asked the FBI to look into uh, Clinton. And how unusual is it or is it to have an investigation that's being done by the FBI be known? It's relatively unusual. Most of these are we never hear about. Mm. Maybe they get undertaken, they get concluded, there are no charges. We'll, we'll never, ever know it happened. It's very unusual to have it be that public. Even then, the FBI was very slow and very reluctant to confirm that they were undertaking such an mm. investigation because not only are the referrals generally not public, but the FBI almost never comments on the existence of a pending investigation. Here, uh, and then again, this was also highly unusual in that the referral was to someone that everyone knew was about to announce a campaign to, r- to run for president. Mm. So it thrust the FBI into a very, very awkward position of everyone knowing that a referral had been made, then having a you know almost surefire presidential candidate being the subject of the referral, and then constant press inquiries uh, as to what's the status, where is it going, when are we going to find out, what are you uncovering? And it just became ridiculous to pretend that there wasn't an investigation going on, so they finally confirmed it. So in there, so we know this investigation's going on. We know Trump is, is once he announces his presidency, is thrilled to use this information to drive his locker-up uh, rallying cry. But it seemed to me, and and you talk about this in the book, so when Comey makes the first announcement that the investigation has concluded, talk a little bit about how he sort of jumped the line in deciding to make the announcement rather than have the Department of Justice make the announcement. There's no question that Comey's decision to unilaterally call a press conference and announce that they had not uncovered adequate evidence to charge Hillary Clinton with a crime was, was extremely unorthodox. The, um, the chain of command is that the president appoints the director of the FBI, but the FBI director then reports to the attorney general. The FBI is a subset of the Department of Justice. Typically, the FBI is the investigative arm. It gathers the evidence. It presents that to the Department of Justice. Mm. The attorney general then makes the final determination whether charges should be brought or not. What was so unusual about this case was, again, the subject of the investigation was the Democratic nominee for the presidency. A Democratic administration was in place. There was a Democratic President Obama who had made a couple of relatively mild, but nonetheless, uh, he probably shouldn't have made any comment about the case at all, but he had somewhat dismissed the seriousness of it. And then his appointee, Loretta Lynch, was the attorney general. And Comey was very worried that if a Democratic administration and a Democratic appointee made the decision that public would not accept it as a fair and independent 
evaluation of the evidence. Now, even then, and again, this is so fascinating when you see the way the stars aligned here, he probably wouldn't have done it if Hillary Clinton's husband, the former president, Bill Clinton, hadn't barged onto the attorney general's airplane in Phoenix, Arizona, and sat there for 35 minutes talking to her just weeks before the announcement Mm. was going to be made. And there was immediate press. Everyone assumed that he must have been twisting Lynch's arm to make sure that she didn't charge Hillary with a crime. So if I if I read your accounting, which is very detailed, you develop a kind of an understanding and a comfort that uh, Jim Comey was doing what he thought would protect the integrity of the FBI and and totally protect it from any accusations of unfair play. Yet. What was ironic to me is when you read the details that he put into his announcement, so it's already unusual for the FBI director to make the announcement. Okay, we sort of understand that. Now, in clearing her, he nonetheless provides a level of detail that's unusual and basically a collection of facts that make you wonder how they reached that conclusion. What was that about? Well, I, I, I'm confident that Comey felt he needed to provide some of the facts, including the most damaging facts that they uncovered, to demonstrate that they had been thorough, that they had found damaging information. They had weighed that in their decisions and had nonetheless decided to Uh, not that she not be charged. And I think in his mind, that gave it more credibility, that people would understand that it was a fair mind, it was thorough, it wasn't just a whitewash, that they recognized that she had behaved in what I believe he called um, a negligent manner in handling those communications. And he thought that would buttress confidence in the independence of the FBI. What's your observation about it? Well, it's very hard to examine this now without benefit of hindsight. Mm. It it clearly, I mean, he did depart from uh, Justice Department norms. It infuriated people in the Department of Justice. It was very upsetting to uh, Loretta Lynch and her top deputies who understandably felt he just pulled the rug out from under them and had circumvented decades of tradition. And there are reasons for these rules. I think with benefit of hindsight, most people feel this was a mistake, but he didn't have the benefit of hindsight at the time. He is a very, I think, absolutely honest, and his he was acting in the best of intentions. Um, he was maybe hoping for a level of purity here that in the real world is- Can't exist. Can't really exist. And But I think it's in fairness to him, if it hadn't been for- Huma Abedin handing over the emails to her husband, Anthony Weiner, 
and they all showed up on his laptop, which led to the whole thing being reopened, we probably wouldn't be talking about this now. We never would have heard any more about it. He, mm-hmm. There was very little criticism of Comey at the time from Democrats or Republicans. In fact, there were raves. I yeah, mean, raves. Wh- he got, he was, bipartisan uh, raves. Yes, he got nothing but approval for this. I mean, everybody at the FBI who realized that it could be a controversial decision because it was so unorthodox, they breathed big sighs of relief. You know, wow, we, you know, we got through that very well. I mean, the reputation of the FBI only seemed to be enhanced by it. But going to the second issue. So this gets closed up. He does the uh, he makes a statement. He's get, as we said, he's getting raves. Now comes the fall. And in the process of a, a New York investigation of Wiener, the, the husband of Huma Abedin, who's been a loyal staff member to Hillary Clinton from from the White House days, the investigation it has to be reopened because they discover another 50,000 or something of email. So here's a series of questions that occurred to me in reading it. One is, how did Huma Abedin get off so easily from the accusation that she singularly undermined Hillary Clinton by putting these emails, allowing these emails to, I mean, didn't she have her own computer? That it's, this is on her husband's computer? So that's question one. And question two is, walk us through Comey making the decision on the eve of the election to nonetheless disclose that information. Well, the first question is to, you know, why wasn't uh, Huma Abedin held more accountable um, is is quite a legitimate question. And I think one thing that emerged as they weighed the evidence about Hillary Clinton mishandling confidential information was that if they were going to charge Hillary Clinton, as someone put it to me, they were going to have to charge half the State Department. I mean, a lot. Because they all were they doing were this. They were all being reckless with emails. Yeah. And, you know, using unsecured devices. I mean, you're right. Huma Abedin should never, I mean, they should never have been going through those channels, let alone put on a, you know, a laptop that they shared or both used, but never got to the point of investigating other people in the State Department because- That would have been endless. I mean, Huma Abedin did testify and said that she was never aware there was any classified information that was being transmitted. And there was no, she said, look, I'm I'm just like a glorified secretary. I mean, I just did what I was told. I didn't Mm -hmm. read this stuff. I didn't know what was on it. And I think that was plausible. Mm -hmm. So she didn't really have a state, the state of mind required to bring criminal charges, even though it was certainly sloppy to have been, you know, handling the material that that it was. Uh, That was number one. Number two, the reason it all came back out in the open is that Comey had sent a letter to Congress saying the the uh, investigation of Hillary Clinton was closed. Now they have another 60,000 emails that surfaced. There was a, a big you know, disagreement within the FBI about what to do with that, whether they should say anything publicly about it, whether they should wait to find out what was really in those 60,000 emails. The problem was the Wiener laptop was in New York. It was discovered by the New York Bureau of the FBI the New York Bureau of the FBI was known to be a hotbed of both anti-Hillary Clinton sentiment and people who were leaking 
to the press. Most people inside the FBI thought there was no way they would be able to keep that secret. If they didn't make it public, it would have leaked, and then it would look like they were hiding something. Mm -hmm. Comey felt, having written the letter to Congress, he had an obligation to then correct the record and say, we've reopened it. And by the way, if he hadn't done it, they would have found out anyway, and he would have looked terrible. You know, one of the things that I found, there were a lot of times where it's, where what you talk about in the book sort of took my breath away. And one was what seemed like a little thing, but it's such a reminder of whoever these, whoever big figures that are swaying the history of our world are, they're still human beings. And the one that struck me was, so Comey technically should have let uh, Sally Yates at uh, the Department of Justice Mm -hmm. and Loretta Lynch make the decision whether to disclose this or not. But in fact, in the way the communications worked, it was Yates and, and Lynch were aware of it, but Comey seemed to suggest that he w- he I'll take this one and you don't need to make a decision and they on the other hand didn't think they were being asked for their opinion and there was sort of this cross communication i mean i don't know that i'm describing it as well as it could but it was sort of stunning that they were misreading each other accidentally well yes again it's with benefit of hindsight, you know, I think people sort of shift their attitudes a little bit. As I, the best I understand it, when Comey made the first decision in July to go to freelance and basically clear Hillary Clinton, he did that without telling anyone at mm. the Department of Justice. They were extremely upset about that afterwards. He knew it. When it came time to reopen the investigation, this time he did tell them ahead of time. Right. And nobody said, oh, don't do it. And he explained his reasons Well, somebody for it. said, don't do it. Some did say, yeah. they, they said they were against it. Baker, was it Baker uh, who said, don't no, do it? No, it was Sally Yates um, was, I think, and and, the other, and other people at Justice were opposed to publicly disclosing they were reopening it. Um, but he did at least give them some advance notice, and he went ahead and sent the letter. And then, of course, when he finally did close it yet again, a few days later, he briefed them even more, and they were But that you know, got they were little fine. or no attention. That got surprisingly little attention. Yeah. So the big question that all of us ask is, did that second step actually become a determinative element of the election? So in your book, you talk about Nat Silver. Is it Nat or Nate? Nate, Nate, Nate Silver. Silver. Mm-hmm feels by analyzing the numbers, you know, and, and that's what he's known for, that he predicts these properly, that the 1% in the key states could have turned the election. You have a very different conclusion in your book about whether that through the election or not. Share that with us. Well, I, I just don't think it's anything we'll, able, we'll ever be able to prove one way or another. We know we can't, this isn't a chemistry experiment that we can go back and change the variables and run it over again. The reason I'm a little skeptical of Nate Silver and I respect his work, and it is true, there's no way this helped Hillary Clinton. Right. Absolutely no way. <laughs> That's it for sure. It could only have hurt. The only question is, how much did it hurt? But I felt 
part of the reason that it hurts so much, and I, you know, I think it's only fair to include this, is that uh, the locker up chants, the attacks by Trump, fed a narrative that had been in place for many years. Mm in which Hillary Clinton was not deemed to be trustworthy and that the Clintons in particular had always acted as though the law didn't apply to them. Going all the way back to Whitewater, to Monica Lewinsky, to Hillary covering up about that, the missing records. I did a whole other book about the Clintons, which I think establishes that I am truly nonpartisan. I mean, Yes, it, it does, Jim. It I read on, that book. <laughs> it came, it, this came upon decades of, of behavior that a lot of people felt was slippery to put it mildly mm. and so she became her own willing accomplice to the news yes well i think yeah i think she bears a lot of the blame for the the negative effect that this had both for her past actions and then the way mm. she handled this which was not very effective to begin with and then trump himself said you know drop the ball when she got exonerated and didn't make enough out of that she w was always sort of acting like, oh, this is no big deal. Mm. Or Bill Clinton going on the plane. And Bill Clinton going on the plane. I mean, I, I have to wonder, you know, he he made those comments in South Carolina that hurt her four years before, and now he did this. I mean, if he'd been trying, I, I don't think he was consciously trying, no. but if he was trying to hurt his wife's campaign, he could not have come up with a better way of doing it. What was he thinking? So there was plenty of blame to go around for why this particular action did hurt her. I do, I do think it hurt her. I, I remember being in a room with, I was in the Midwest, I was at a board meeting, there were probably 60% Republicans in the room that didn't want to vote for Trump. And I, the announcement came, everybody heard it. I could feel the tone in yeah. that room change and like attitudes like, oh my God, there, there go the Clintons again. We can't have four more years of that. Yeah. So it picked it a scab that was ripe for the picking. Yes. Now, one of the ironies, I think. So we're going to move over to the other big piece of the book, which is uh, the Mueller investigation and the appointment of a special counsel. But let's start with this piece, which struck me as problematic, although I understand it. So Obama and the FBI knew that there was reason to believe that the Russians were interfering with the election. Absolutely. And I'm going to I'm going to consider that a macro item. Then underneath that was were Trump or his people colluding with the Russians in their interference into the election. So the decision was made by Obama by the Department of Justice by the FBI not to disclose that information when they had it in the late spring or early summer. Right. Now, I understand why the decision was made to not build Trump into it and, and Obama not wanting to feel like he's throwing the election. But why wouldn't they have disclosed this notion, the macro notion, of Russia interfering in the election? Well, I think there were two reasons. One, as you've alluded to, uh, Obama and the intelligence agencies did not want in any way to be accused of disseminating information that might be seen as trying to tilt the election. To disclose that the Russians were helping Trump, there was no way that would not have been a cloud. But why not just disclose that they were interfering? Well, because that interference only went in one direction, which was to help 
help Trump. And I think- And that would have been the presumption. Yes. And they were concerned mm-hmm. about that. And then the second point, which I think I should have mentioned with Comey's decision as well, but it applies here. Remember, at the time these decisions were made, everyone thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. In a landslide. In a landslide. So they, Comey thought when he was reopening that investigation, oh, well, this won't affect the election because she's going to win anyway. But it'll safeguard the FBI. It'll safeguard the FBI. I think the White House, Obama and the White House felt the same thing. Well, Hillary's going to win, so I don't need to do anything that might be seen as trying Mm. to put my weight on the scales. I can have the luxury of absolutely not interfering in any way, and my preferred candidate will still win. That calculation was completely upended when Trump actually did win. Mm. So now let's go on to the opening of the FBI investigation. So one of the first lightning rods was the Steele dossier and the uh, presumption that that, in fact, was the that that was the information that opened the FBI investigation. And that coupled with the fact that the Steele dossier looked like it was connected to fusion and therefore the Hillary Clinton campaign and was salacious details that had nothing to do with reality. So let's start with, did the Steele dossier, in fact, open the FBI investigation? Well, this is a very important point that many people don't seem to understand because the answer is no, it did not. The investigation was already well underway. The four named subjects of the investigation, all of them working on the Trump campaign, were already identified. Case files had been opened at the FBI long before the first copy of the Steele dossier reached government circles. And Jim, what do you make of the Steele uh, dossier? Because so just for everybody listening, Christopher Steele was a retired M-16. Is that the right? Uh, MI-6. MI-6 agent, was a respected guy. There were details that Trump was in a hotel room, that there were prostitutes, that there were other things um, going on, and that the Russians had the capacity to therefore bribe or extort from Trump. Right. What do you make of the dossier? Do you think do you think that it's probably based on good information? There's rumors that there, that was counterintelligence that this was part of just trying to upend people's confidence in information. Well, there um I know I know a lot about this. The uh first of all, I talked to many FBI people who had to evaluate the dossier and then I of course read it myself and I'm an investigative reporter. And I know from talking to the FBI that they did not put very much weight on it. And I know why I looked at it myself. It's the problem with the dossier from an investigative standpoint is there's no what they call actionable material Mm -hmm. in there. It's all information that has happened or purportedly has happened in the past. There's nothing about an ongoing effort here. There's nothing about meetings coming up. There's nothing about people, for example, that you might want to approach and say, can we turn you into a a cooperating? Can we put a wire on you and you can go into the meeting and record what's happening? There was absolutely nothing that could be then 
acted upon to try to further investigate the existence of this these alleged incidents. All of it could, almost all of it could have been put together with, you know, careful reading of published sources, uh, with some exceptions. I would say maybe 25% of the dossier seemed possibly authentic. And it was extremely well done in the sense that these were unknown names to most people, but it was the right names, the mm -hmm. right places for the most part. There were few errors in there. So it did seem, you know, on its face somewhat plausible, but I know that no one no one viewed it highly as uh, actionable material. And at the end of the day, it was incidental. It was to, incidental. To what turned out to be meaningful it, indicia of Russia interfering in the election with the help of some Trump affiliates. That's correct. It um it it played only a small role in the uh, FBI obtaining the permission to wiretap one of the four named subjects. That was Carter Page. Uh, the application did disclose that the source of the dossier was a potential p political partisan who was opposed to Trump's election. So that was fully disclosed without saying exactly that it was fusion. In fact, I don't think people in the FBI knew it was fusion back then. So I, I don't think there was anything untoward or improper about mm -hmm. the way that was handled. Now, you know, an ongoing question is, do the Russians have some kind of compromising tapes? And one of the things I point out in the book is Michael Cohen, you know, Trump's kind of fixer and lawyer, had heard independently of the Steele dossier mm -hmm. about the existence of tapes. He had warned Trump that this, that the Russians were saying this. So when Comey sat down and told Trump that the FBI that wasn't saying that it was true, but that they had information suggesting this. He was giving Trump a heads up. He was giving Trump a heads up. Trump presumably already knew about this. And didn't deny it in his meeting he oddly with Comey. Didn't, he didn't really deny it. He 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 kept saying, well, why would I need, you know, I'm, I'm rich. Yeah, I'm, I'm I handsome. can get anybody. I can, I can get anybody, you know, which is an odd. He also. Or I, think, I don't want Melania upset. Right. And I think. Something that's very important to people to recognize and I you know explore in the book, if you're a law enforcement and you're looking at the president's reaction, this is not what you want to hear. <laughs> right. If somebody says, oh, the Russians claim to have compromising tapes and material on you, what you want him to say is, that's outrageous and I want you to get to the bottom of it and tell me how I and anyone around me can help you. Yeah. That is not what he but said. But that isn't – and he wasn't – even take him aside – I mean, I think one of the thing, one of the observations that's been made universally is Trump seems to even take him out of the equation, doesn't seem to be that interested in understanding how the Russians are interfering, did interfere, will interfere in the election and what security measures or stopgaps should go into place to preclude that from happening. No, I think it's perfectly clear that not only was he not that concerned about it, but to the extent that the Russians helped him, he welcomed it. Now, the, Mueller found that he didn't collude, that he didn't instigate it. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't be the subject of concern that he, in fact, welcomed what he knew about what they were doing. But there are, I think there are two, uh, there's a key revelation here, or two really, uh, that I want to mention. Because, you know, the, the reason Comey told Trump, and I think this is, 
hasn't been disclosed except in my book. It wasn't just to give him a heads up or because it was like a friendly tip. They knew that by telling Trump that the FBI knew about this, that they were eliminating that material as a potential blackmail threat. Mm-hmm. In other words, if the Russians came to Trump and said, look, it we have, neutralized it, it neutralized it because Trump has nothing to gain by submitting to the blackmail because the they pr- know they already know. So they protected him. Yeah. He doesn't seem to have recognized that. The second thing is, it was, I believe, the night after that meeting that Trump first starts raising the question, should I get rid of Comey? Right. And in the Trump world, I think all he took away from that meeting was, Comey has something on me and He's he has go. to go. That's the end. He has to go. I don't tolerate that. So let's move over to... Comey's firing. And there's a lot of lot of material. I mean, I hope what uh, our conversation is just like the tip of the material that you've gotten here. But so one of the most surprising pieces to me in the book, as an addictive, addicted reader of this information mm-hmm. as it was happening, is Rod Rosenstein. Mm-hmm. So he's a pivotal character. So uh, let's rebuild it. Tr- Trump issues his letter firing Comey and and basically says, even though he told me I'm not being investigated three times, I'm firing him. But he then very quickly says that Rod Rosenstein said, you got to fire him. And he, in fact, gets Rod Rosenstein to issue a sort of stunning letter and almost allows the lie to exist. I mean, he makes some little suggestions that he didn't do this. And they and Spicer lied about it. I love that scene of him hiding in the bush in the dark or something. But um, so just tell us what was going on with Rod Rosenstein in general, like why would he have not raised his hand as a member of the Department of Justice to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute? Well, it's it was very interesting that when um, Rosenstein was first appointed as the deputy attorney general, uh, a friend of Comey's asked him what he thought of him. Did he know him? Did he, had he thought of him? And he did know him. In fact, Rosenstein had invited Comey to his U.S. attorney's office as a role model to talk to assistant U.S. attorneys at the time. But he said when he was appointed, he said, Rod Rosenstein is a survivor. That turned out to be a very prescient comment. Mm-hmm. So here, I mean, in fairness to Rosenstein, I don't think he had any idea what he was getting into when he was named the deputy. First of all, Sessions, the attorney general, recused himself from the Russia investigation, which enraged Trump and led to a huge campaign against Sessions. But that put Rod Rosenstein in charge of it. So then they get called over to the White House. And he says, Trump says, well, I've decided I'm going to fire Comey. What do you think? Now, neither Sessions or Rosenstein have the backbone to stand up to him. I mean, this was frankly a terrible idea, as we all now know. But he said, I'm going to do it. And he had done this long memo over the weekend, which basically said, you know, I'm not going to, he's invested. It was all about Russia, mostly. So they both, both Sessions and uh, Rosenstein said, oh, yeah, we agree. You ought to get rid of him. And Rosenstein chimed in and said, you know, because he really mishandled that Clinton thing. 
oh, well, you know, Trump lit up like a Christmas tree at that because one of his favorite subjects is Clinton. And he said, uh, write me a memo about this. And the next day, Rosenstein delivered it. Now, I don't know what Rosenstein thought Trump was going to do with the memo, but he he took it. And he then made that. The official statement was, oh, I just fired Comey because the Justice Department told me to do it. And it's because of how he mishandled the Clinton investigation. Well, both of the things were blatantly false. It was not the Justice Department telling him to do it. He told the Justice Department he was going to do it. And secondly, the real reason was not Clinton. And, you know, again, you see the official spokespeople trying to go out there. Then, this is, I think, a revelation in the book, Trump started pressuring Rosenstein to hold a press conference Mm -hmm. in which he would come out and say, it was all my idea to fire Comey, digging even deeper on the lie. Which Rosenstein refused to do. Which, to his credit, he refused to do. And Sessions backed him up and called him again. And the White House said, look, you know, this is false. You know, you're pushing the wrong way. And then Trump, you know, blew up and... He said, well, I'm going to deal with this my own way. And he goes on to Lester Holt. And then he pulls the rug out and he admits, he said, well, it was really, it was Russia. I know. <laughs> it was Russia. There, That left Rosenstein absolutely reeling. And again, I think one of the most riveting parts of the book is that the next few days, I mean, Rosenstein was melting down. I, you know, here he was at a crossroads in his life, in his career. You know, I He'd want to read a piece of this, this, Jim, because I sure. thought that was... Rosenstein now talking to McCabe, yes, Andy McCabe. McCabe. McCabe now has been thrust into the role of running the FBI once Comey was fired. Right. Because McCabe so, was the deputy. Rosenstein asked to see McCabe, and uh, McCabe was shocked. Rosenstein was confiding, confiding in him, essentially calling the president a liar. They barely knew each other, but he wanted to be compassionate. Are you okay? McCabe said, no. Are you get no, said Rosenstein. Are you getting any sleep? No. Is your family okay? Rosenstein said there were news trucks parked outside his house. His family his wife and family were upset. There was a pause. Then Rosenstein said, There's no one here I can talk to about this. There's no one I can trust. Rosenstein seemed again to be struggling to hold his emotions in check. After a pause, He asked if McCabe thought he should appoint a special counsel, and McCabe said, yes, it would be a good idea. Rosenstein said he had always considered Jim Comey a friend and a mentor, someone he looked up to. The one person I wish I could talk to is Jim Comey. So I think what this part of the book encourages me to ask you is, What was the process, Jim, that you used in accumulating this information? Because this is pretty detailed, pretty personal. It's got quotes around the language. So just so that everybody listening has a sense, what was your process? Well, it's, you know, it's very thorough. Um, You might think, oh, wow, well, there were only two people in the room there, McCabe and Rosenstein. Rosenstein. And... I don't directly quote either one of them. I mean, I, of course, I interviewed many people who are too afraid or under investigation. They couldn't allow themselves mm-hmm. to be on the record. But in most of this drama, the fact that there are two people there, they a lot of pe- people wrote memos about things. They confided in other people. So, 
even in a scene like that, there is quite a bit of evidence of exactly what was said mm-hmm. and what happened. And, and the other thing that threw me is then afterwards, Rosenstein issues a statement about Comey that's very damning about Terrible. Comey. Now, some people would say as an observer, so Rosenstein accuses Comey of being a, you know, a publicity hound. He's doing his book tour and all of that. But the part that that might ring true to a lot of people is Comey did seem to look like he was looking after his reputation of being this upstanding man, which I'm not saying he isn't, but nonetheless, his willingness to do the book and get out there and start talking, that did begin to suggest an egoy part of this that didn't help him. Do you think that's a fair observation? Well, many, many people have, have made that point. I think um, what you saw, what you see in the book with Rosenstein, which I think is so fascinating, is a gradual transformation where he goes from seeing Comey as one of his heroes to wishing he could talk to Comey a day or two after he basically helped having fired him to crossing more deeply into the White House camp and then turning completely against Comey, criticizing him for the book tour. You know, I know Comey didn't initially resisted doing the book. Some, you know, very, you know, you're a book person, you know, how literary agents can be very persuasive. (laughs) And so they got him to do a book. And then the book was going to be about, quote unquote, leadership and his experience in the bureau. And then he sat down and somebody paid a lot of money for this book. And they sat him down and said, well, wait a minute, you know, nobody wants to read your take on leadership. We want to know, give us the goods. What happened? What happened? And then. Not only did he then say what happened, I think one of the things I tried to set up in the beginning of the book, I can't imagine two personalities more congenitally different than Trump and Comey. Mm. They are diametrically opposed to each other in every way. I think Comey, not only did he experience firsthand what he considered some of the worst qualities of Trump, but he sees Trump as a true threat to our democratic institutions and the independence of our investigative agencies for good reason. And he went on the war path. He thinks he was doing his civic and patriotic duty that also happened to sell a lot of books. There were people who felt that he should have just quietly, Mm -hmm. like Mueller, you know, gone off into the sunset and not not said another word. Again, we're we're in unprecedented times. I mean, this is a place where his, you know, Trump himself is tweeting on a daily basis. He's like he gets the front page every single day. So was Comey just supposed to like disappear and say nothing? I, I, you know, you can disagree with him, but I don't, you know, challenge again that his motive was to stand up for what he thought was right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that we're slightly running out of time. So I, I do. We're not going to cover Andrew McCabe, which I am. I'm torn as I read it from him being a culprit to collateral damage to a lot of other people's agendas. And people will have to read the book um, to get to that. What I do want to make sure we get to is uh, the Mueller report. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and I have the Mueller report at home. I can't say I've read all of it, but I've read some of it. I've read it all. Well, I figured. <laughs> but one of the things that I I want to make sure we get to is this, that when I read the excerpt from Mueller's uh, conclusions about Trump, 
which are quite devastating. Devastating. And then when you read his letter on March 27th that he sent to Barr after Barr summarized it, and I'm going to read this because it's short. As we stated in our meeting of March 5th and reiterated to the department early in the afternoon of March 24th, the introduction and executive summaries of our two-volume report accurately summarize this office's work and conclusions. The summary letter the department sent to Congress and released to the public late in the afternoon of March 24th did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this office's work and conclusion. And, you know, in the report, I mean, Mueller's pretty clear. Our investigation found multiple acts by the president that were capable of exerting undue influence over law enforcement investigations, including the Russian interference and obstruction investigations. So, can I just give you one good example? Of course. Because Barr and Rosenstein came out in their announcement and said, oh, you can't have the crime of obstruction of justice unless there was an underlying crime that they were trying to obstruct. And since there was no collusion found with Russia, there wasn't any underlying crime. Therefore, we can't have an obstruction charge. But that's not the law. And Mueller is crystal clear that that is the opposite of what the law says. Obstruction of justice is not a crime only for the guilty. We wouldn't need to have it. I mean, there are many reasons that people try to obstruct. They've, they've done things that are embarrassing or that they may not be illegal, but they're, um, they're greedy. They're questionable. They're disgraceful. And people might lie. And, and, and if they do, you never then find out who is guilty. Mm-hmm. So it's nonsense to say, as Barr and Rosenstein did in that announcement, that you can only charge obstruction if there's an underlying crime. And I think that's one of the things Mueller was talking about when he wrote that letter. But, Jim, do you think that Mueller was not decisive enough that he left too much to Congress, that there was enough to drive a truck through? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that he says we didn't find evidence, we didn't find, you know, I guess, proof of the crime of obstruction. And But then he was saying, but the reason we didn't, because it wouldn't be fair to actually charge him. All the elements of that crime are in the Mueller report. Well, that's... You just tick off each box, you know, the the act of obstruction, the intimidating of witnesses, the motive for doing it. It's all there. I, if I'm a prosecutor, I could walk into court tomorrow and, and convene a grand jury on that. So that's number one. Number two, he did stop short in several puzzling ways. He never made... Trump testify under oath about anything that happened after he became president, and he did not make him testify about the obstruction charges, all of which happened after he became president. Now, I know he didn't want to have a prolonged constitutional fight, but if it was – if I'd been Mueller, I would have demanded that he testify, and if he refused, I would have gone to Congress and said, I can't finish this because he will not answer critical questions. And then finally, he let Rosenstein off the hook. There's nothing in there about those tumultuous days. What did Rosenstein promise Trump that kept that got led him to keep his job? And what did Mueller know about it? Mueller Rosenstein was one of the first witnesses that Mueller interviewed, and yet Rosenstein is hardly in the Mueller the report, report. Hardly in there. Now, p- people close to Rosenstein defended him by saying, "Look, he what he said he had to do, he did to protect Mueller to keep Mueller from being fired." But that's not the be-all and end-all. Maybe the country would be better off if Mueller had been fired and if they had stood up for a thorough investigation. So 
in these few minutes we have left, we're going to cover Ukraine, impeachment, and the Republicans. So, Jim, be ready. It'll be a little rat-a-tat-tat. So what would it take for Republicans? You know, because I am not in the school of, you know, Republicans are all bad people. I think these are people struggling to figure out the right thing to do. And they're politicians. They also want to win their elections. That's not new to, you know, 2019. But what is it, based on your ongoing work and the and the work in the book, will it take for the Republicans to say, ay, 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 this, this is too much? Well, I, I think they're getting pretty close. Um, you know, the with the Ukraine thing, the, the one missing piece in the Mueller report on Russia collusion was that Trump himself did not collude. He did not encourage, he did not explicitly agree with the Russians to do anything. He did not ask them to do it. He benefited from it. Now, he's provided the one missing piece with the Ukraine by openly asking the Ukrainians to interfere in the election by investigating his his principal opponent. So he just handed them what was missing from the Mueller report uh, on a silver platter, which, by the way, the day after Mueller testified, it, uh, I mean, it's so I'm dumbfounded by the fact that Trump apparently learned nothing from this entire mm. process, except that he won. And total victory, he declared it, which only emboldened him to go farther. And now, even more brazenly, in full public view, he's calling on China to do something similar, as if committing the crime in plain sight makes it, you know, somehow- Makes it okay. Makes it okay. I don't know how the Republicans are, are going to cope with that. I mean, I think they're still clinging to this idea that, uh, well, if he's not covering it up, there can't be anything wrong. I, I don't know. I think when a, when a smart lawyer presents the facts, presents the articles of impeachment, it's going to be very, very difficult not to, to ignore the facts. And what's your observation about, for the good of the country, that the articles of impeachment at this late in the game will undermine the democratic process of an election and therefore take what's already a frayed sense of confidence in institutions and wipe it out? Well, I think the Democrats and Republicans as well, they they need to stand up for the rule of law. And whatever the consequences are, they have to reaffirm reaffirm that. I mean, I think one of the most frightening things that's going on here, and the reason I call the book Deep State, is Trump is branding anyone who tells the truth that's unflattering to him as a traitor. Mm. Not, I mean, as a traitor. And he's even suggested that the death penalty- Yes, it's yeah. treason, that they're, they're all part of this deep, deep state cabal, which is out to under upset democracy. But the fact of the matter is, all they're doing is showing their allegiance to the Constitution and, the, and recognizing they work for the American people. They don't work for the president. If I want to read my, um, what's it called, the epigraph, which yeah. I usually think it's kind of like, you know, wasted. I love that. But I loved it. It's patriotism is supporting your country all the time and your government when it deserves it. Mm. That was Mark Twain. And by the way, that saying was tweeted by Donald Trump himself back in 2014 before he was president. I thought that was rich. Yes. But it captures a very, very important truth to me, which is we are a government of laws. We are a government of institutions. Trump is 
at war with the law enforcement, independent mm. law enforcement in this country in a way that has never happened in my lifetime. I don't believe in in recent American history. And it is a, it's a grave threat to, to the way our system functions. So, Jim, let's, let's end with this. Um, what do you think it will take for our country to rebuild its confidence in both the democratic process and our branches of government? That's well, a little question. It's a big question, but we need people at the Justice Department and at the, running the FBI who will publicly stand up and assert the independence of the agencies. We're not, I'm not seeing that right now at all. It's, it's very worrisome, and I know morale there among the career people is is terrible. So we need people willing to publicly stand up and challenge the president when he's wrong, when he needs to be constrained. And we need a president who recognizes the rule of law. I mean, I know... There is a significant number of people out there. Like, look, believe me, I come from a longtime Republican family. People who are bitterly unhappy about the way the country has been wrong, run, and who are now saying, "I don't care about the rule of law. I want somebody who mm-hmm. espouses my values. Is going to stand up for America. Is going to, you know, keep Im- immigrant illegal immigrants out, um, and is going to, you know, turn their backs on these elites." I I understand that. I know where they're coming from. But history is filled with examples of powerful leaders who went to the population and said, I'm I'm your spokesperson, I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to trample over the mm-hmm. democratic institutions. They end up being dictators or further back monarchs. Right. And I think there are the majority of people in this country understand the democratic traditions, they're deeply embedded, and ultimately, I believe, will come down on the side of the rule of law. All right. I'm going to end on that note, Jim, because... I am an optimist at heart. So am I. Um, So I I urge everybody to read this because I do think one of our responsibilities is to inform ourselves with facts and not become subject to the onslaught of the 24-7 news, which is hard to gain a perspective on. And I think what you do here is, like you always do, is in an unbiased facts, you know, just the facts— ma'am, way, take what has happened over these last three years and chronologically take us through it in a way that enormously enhanced um, my understanding of what went on. And we didn't get to a lot of it, but everybody's just going to have to read the book. (laughs) Well, I hope so. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks, Roxanne. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.